Luke chapter number 1, verse 26, speaking of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it says, In the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed or engaged, we would call it that, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name, say it with me, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said, or answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And I want you to read this verse with me out loud. For nothing will be impossible with God. Let's do it again. For nothing will be impossible with God. One more time with conviction. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the first of three scenes that I want to visit today in this message that I've, I've titled How Christmas Can Banish Fear. That is not the will of the Lord for anybody in his family, any of his children, to live in the spirit of fear. As a matter of fact, I can say on the, on the uh, foundation of Scripture that if you're living with the spirit of fear, it's not God. At best, it's your flesh. At maybe the worst, it is the enemy coming against you to prevent you from entering in and abiding in the inheritance that the Lord has left for you. Fear is a proven weapon of the enemy, and he seizes and holds so many. And just being born again does not necessarily permanently immunize you from his strategy of fear coming against you. We must walk in the Spirit. We must walk according to the objective written word of God. We must believe the promises of God in a stronger sense than we believe our emotions, than we believe what we see and what we hear. We must be anchored in the truth and the person of God. And so I'm well, willing to confess to you that I don't always do this. Most of the time I do. I don't live often in fear, but I'm going to say candidly, there was a long stretch in my Christian journey where my life was dominated by fear. 
I wasn't living in open sin. There was no immorality in my life. I wasn't uh, absent from the word. I was, I was doing all things Christian, all things uh, ministry. I was engaged. I was seeking the Lord. I was pressing in. But every single day for a period of not weeks or months, but a period of a few years, every single day, I had to fight against fear and I had to fight for joy. I wish I could say that I've always walked on water, but quite frankly, I haven't. I've taken a few steps, and I know what it's like to walk with Jesus on the waves, but I also know what it's like to sink with Peter. And my desire is that as we approach the end of the age, I'm going to just boldly declare, I'm asking the Holy Spirit this morning for boldness in me to preach this without apology and, and boldness and confidence for you to receive it as a message from God to you today. I'm telling you, it's not the will of the Lord that you live another day of your life trapped by fear. And if you're waiting on your circumstances to provide you your sense of fearlessness, then you're going to be waiting a while. Because, friends, how can we know we've overcome fear if there's not something fearful to overcome? So let's look in Mary's example first, and then we'll move into Joseph and, Lord willing, the shepherds, if Jesus doesn't come first, because this feels like a long message. So here we go. First step, fear not when your, your assignment is overwhelming. When your assignment is overwhelming. This is Mary's story. So let's walk through this and let's just put it in real time. Let's take it out of, you know, theatrics and Hollywood and Hallmark and sweet sentimental, uh, you know, entertainment industry. And let's just let it get down into the grit of the way it actually happened. Let me say in verses 26, 27, 28, and 29, flat out, Mary gets ambushed from heaven. It's a holy and glorious mugging from Gabriel. It says in the sixth month, and speaking of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel was sent from God. So God said to Gabriel, go. Where, God? Where do you want me to go? Go to Galilee, to a city named Nazareth, to a virgin. And it means virgin in the most extreme sense of the word. A, a woman who had, a young woman, a teenager who had never been sexually active. She's a virgin who's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David's. The virgin's name was Mary. So, and it just says, and, and, and Luke writing here with a doctor's precision, and he came to her. Gabriel came to Mary and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And obviously, verse 29 makes perfect sense. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Let's just get real here. I want you to put yourself in Mary's sandals for a moment. She's there and she's planning her wedding. Uh, I'm not a girl. I've never even played one on TV. I'm just a dude. But I do. I, I, I have a wife. I have a daughter. I have three sisters. I have a mom. I have a stepmom. I've been around women my whole life. And one of the things that is true with most women is when it comes time, when they've met the one, and it, come time, it comes time for the wedding season, it dominates. It thrills. Sometimes it can cause anxiety, but it typically thrills. And most women, even from a young age as girls, they think about their wedding. You, you know when the guy thinks about the wedding? Like 20 minutes before he's going to propose. You know when he thinks about it again? When he's standing at the altar and they open the doors and there comes his bride and he says, yeah! 
But in between, there's not a whole lot going on up here for the guys. Most guys, we don't think about it. But the ladies, they think about it. And so Mary's in this season. She's met Joseph. The arrangement has been made that her family and his family worked it out. A dowry has been paid, as was the custom. At this point in a betrothal in, fr in first century Jewish culture, they were as good as married. There was just a waiting season while all things were being prepared. And as a matter of fact, in order for them not to go through the wedding, there would have to be an annulment, an official legal annulment. So they're as good as married. And there she is one night, and she's thinking of Joseph, and she's thinking about getting married, and she's thinking about what all that can mean. And in the midst of all of that, the most mighty, glorious creature enters into the room, and he says, hello. And it's Gabriel. And he just comes in, and he announces with no explanation, you, Mary, are favored. The Lord is with you. Now, what we don't probably identify with in first century Palestine is that women had no social status whatsoever and even young women like this had even less say what you want about Christianity and conservatism and all of that but Jesus Christ has done more to liberate women globally than any figure in human history making equal playing field between male and female. And yet in Mary's day, women were basically the property of their husbands in the most extreme situations. And here's this young teenage girl. And she's sitting there in an angelic visitor. And she doesn't have verses, uh, you know, 26 and, 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 and all of the, the declaration that God sent Gabriel. All she knows is all of a sudden a heavenly creature is in her room and he speaks to her declaring that Yahweh is for her. Yahweh is upon her. The favor of God Almighty is on this little teenage girl and, and her reaction is absolute stark terror. When we see it, we're, we're, it's almost like uh, Mary's like, oh, an angel. How pleasant. How beautiful. Feels like Christmas. Wasn't it at all? The Bible says she was greatly troubled. The Greek indicates, uh, indicates that it totally rocked Mary. And she's trying to figure out in the first five seconds, what did he just say to me and what does that mean? We'll go a little bit further because from that ambush proceeds her assignment. She's about to get her lifelong purpose probably at the age of 15 or 16 years old. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you will call his name Yeshua. You will call his name, in, in English it would be Joshua. Uh, in Greek here we have Jesus. It, it means Yahweh saves. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, again, I want you to process this like Mary. She's planning a wedding to Joseph. An angel comes in, and within 30 seconds, her whole life gets flipped. Her assignment that obviously she never could have anticipated. Many women lived in Israel wondering every time a baby boy was born and if they were in the lineage and the right tribe and the right line, they would wonder, could this be the Messiah? Mary would never have to wonder because Mary was told even before the moment of conception, that this baby would be Israel's Messiah. 
She was told his name. She was told that his throne will last forever, that he will instill, install a kingdom that will never have an ending. These are all messianic terms that Mary would have been familiar with, and she's having to process these as an angelic visitor is in her room, and he's prophesying, he's proclaiming, he's decreeing over her, and she's still standing there or sitting there in a, in a state of abject just overload. And I love the fact that his first statement to her is, don't be afraid. You know why? Because when you get an assignment from God, one of the most natural things to do is start recognizing, I can't do this. I'm insufficient. I'm not qualified. You've got to be mistaken. There's no way. It looks impossible. It sounds impossible. And then in a moment here, she's going to raise the biological question that really is in the natural, it would seem to be a deal killer. And so she's, she's getting this download and this assignment from heaven. And it all begins with this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm going to make some pastoral application along the way because my guess is this, that if God gives any of us an assignment and any time that we recognize the assignment on our lives, we also must recognize as Jesus followers that the end game of any assignment he gives us is his glory. That's the end game of every God-given assignment. It may not be our comfort. It may not be our ease. It may not be that it aligns itself with our previously held dreams, as we'll see in a moment in Joseph's life. The end game for every assignment that God gives to any of his children is that on, on the final day, it will bring great glory to his holy and eternal name. And so because of that, it can't be done by you in your own strength. Every assignment has the component that it brings you to an end of yourself. It takes you out of yourself. It stretches you beyond yourself. And so naturally, there should be the sense on all of our lives who have said yes to the assignment of God on our lives, there should be that, those moments where we say, I don't know how I can do this. And that's not necessarily doubt or fear. It just remind, it's, a, it's a regular built-in reminder that the assignments of God for the glory of God require the presence of God. And Mary was about to learn that. And so she's going she's gonna to ask a couple of questions. It doesn't indicate at all that these are out of unbelief. She's processing with this angelic visitor who's just dropped a bombshell on her. And so in verses 34 through 38, just watch how easily Mary comes into alignment with the assignment. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was formerly called barren. And then Gabriel just goes ahead and shot blocks any doubt that might be rising up. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, I love this. Look at this transition. I want to be like Mary in this way. She hears what I would consider an insufficient answer. It, didn't, it does not scratch my itch. His answer did not scratch the itch of what she asked. But look at her. She doesn't hesitate. She says, behold, or in essence, see to this. Watch this, Gabriel. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Gabriel leaves. And the angel departed. So it's pretty obvious to me that Mary had gone through uh, Nazareth Middle School Biology 101. He, she's just been told that she's going to have a baby 
And she raises the question in the natural. She says, I'm a virgin. And so she understood the, the, the process by which, the natural human process by which a child is conceived. And she says, that can't happen. I've never been with a man and I'm not married yet. So I don't understand what you're talking about. And so Gabriel actually gives an answer that if I'm Mary, I'm just like, oh, okay, that's great opening statement. Can you give me the fine print? Because this is what he says. He says, God's going to do it. He's going, oh yeah, Mary, it's okay. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and uh, overshadow you. The Lord's going to come upon you. It's going to overshadow you. And all of a sudden in your womb, it's going to be a holy seed and he's going to be the son of God. And I'm thinking, what? One more time? What, what does that mean? Here, here's something I just want to help us all with. God reserves the right to make declarations without giving explanations. And to the degree that we demand explanations, we risk not being obedient to the revelation. And so Mary had something in her as a 15, 16 year old girl that I still struggle with now as an almost 50 year old man. I'm thinking to myself, I want more information. She's like, oh, well, listen, that's good enough. And then she adds this, you can sense that she's starting to get it. I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. And she says, I'm just a servant to the Lord. She's able to say yes, because she understands that when the assignment comes, it's not to be debated. It's not always explained. It doesn't come with a syllabus all of the time. When the assignment comes from the Lord and you know that you know the Lord and therefore you know that the assignment's from him, the greatest thing you can do is snap off a holy salute and say, I will serve you accordingly, Lord. And that's what she does. I love the fact that it was not complex with her. Um, it's, it's gonna cost Mary, by the way. We see snapshots in Jesus' adulthood when he's being resisted by the religious leaders of his day and he's speaking to them of the fatherhood of God and um, speaking to them of the fatherhood of the devil over their lives. That's pretty bold. People think Jesus is all sweet and syrupy and nice and everything. He literally looked at the most conservative, biblically uh, academic leaders of his day, the most religious people, and he said, your daddy's the devil. If he came up here and did that in most churches in the Southeast, he wouldn't even get a love offering, much less invited back. But what they said to him, they said, oh, we, we, we actually know who our daddy is. We weren't born by fornication. You know what that is? That's them talking about his mama. That stigma followed Mary all of her day. Listen, the assignment from the Lord will cost you with people. I promise you this. That... This is where a lot of us, I think, man, I'm actually feeling a little prophetic ripple on this thing. Some of you are being given assignments that you haven't said, I am the servant of the Lord. Yes, Lord, because you're wondering about the ripple effect it's gonna cost you with other people. And so we, Mary, we need a little bit of Mary in us because Mary understands that what's about to happen to her is completely supernatural. She's got to go to her parents before baby bumps start showing. Because the, listen, the conception was supernatural, but the birth was all natural. So was the gestation, all of it, completely natural. The conception of God, but she carried that baby like any woman ever carries a baby with all of the cramps, with all of the discomfort, with all of the nausea, within the birthing process, all of the pain, all of that. But before any of that happened, she had to go home and explain to her parents. Now, 
put yourself in mom and dad's sandals. You're thinking, you're, you're pregnant? Yes, daddy, but you don't have to worry at all because it was the Lord. <laughs> now, what you don't, may not know about Nazareth, Nazareth was an outpost for Roman soldiers. And if you folks that have been in the military, you know what the barracks can be like. And it's not necessarily a pure place, and so it would not have been uncommon for these soldiers to go out into the surrounding places of Nazareth and, no other way to say it, look for a hookup. And now Mary, living in that area, comes back home, has to tell mom and dad that she's pregnant, but it wasn't a soldier. It wasn't anything ill. It's the Lord. This is, I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. And as, as parents, you, you don't have the revelation. Gabriel didn't knock on your door. And so all of a sudden, Mary's probably experiencing at least some friction with her parents. But that's not maybe, maybe the worst of it. She's got to tell Joseph. She's got to go to Joseph and say, Joseph, we need to talk. And she's got to explain to this man that she's been pure. She's been loyal. She's honored him. She's honored the Lord. And the thing that is happening, the most glorious moment in her life was causing her up to that, pain, up to that place, the greatest pain in her life. Mary, don't be afraid. Now you see why she needed that word. It wasn't just a word for the moment. It was a word from that day forward. Mary, the assignment of the Lord is overwhelming. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. You're highly favored. The grace of the Lord is upon you. So since we've mentioned him, let's transition into Matthew chapter 1. These verses will be up on your screen. And let's talk about Joseph because he gets his own fear not. An angel comes to Joseph. And this is fear not when your dreams fall apart. I would never ask you to raise your hand because it's, it's an awful thing to stand in the shattered fragments of previously held dreams. Just about everybody in the room has had some level of experience with that. And Joseph's whole world is about to crash in upon him. Now, I want you to think, Joseph had been experiencing his own delight because he's about to get married too. Matthew chapter 1 says this in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So Joseph, more than likely, uh, several years older, as was the custom in that day, probably in his mid-20s marrying a young girl, arranged marriages as was customary in that day, and Joseph is finally finding his wife. And so he's excited. He's adding on to his parents' home in that land, which would have been the custom of that time. He's getting all things ready. He knows he's got the woman that he's going to share his life with. She's going to be the mother of his children. So he's excited, and he's just going along happily and building the place. And, and he's a carpenter, so you know it was mapped out. Do people say that anymore? It was nice. It was well-built. He's making this great place for her, and he's going to bring her home on their wedding night, and they're going to be together for, for the rest of their days. So he's experiencing delight. He's living the, the dream of that day. It's a, and it's a simple culture back then. You're, you're probably farming land or operating a trade. You're living fairly, for the most part, most of the people hand-to-mouth, but you got a relationship with the Lord. You're justified. You're a God follower. You're a God fearer. You got the law of Moses governing your life. You've got time in the synagogue where the Hebrew Bible is being preached to you and taught to you. You're honoring the Lord. You're going to honor your wife. You're getting ready. You're going to spend your life with this woman. And then all of those dreams come crashing down with one angelic visitation. Now, pardon me for a moment. I want to make sure we establish this point. 
Because there is in our generation an easiness with which we feel like we might accuse God for messing with our dreams. That is very symptomatic of our generation. You know why? Because we are a self-focused, self-absorbed, selfie generation. And it is, whereas in generations gone by, we would think, okay, God's plans are better than our plans, but because the spirit of bitterness has so invaded even the church of this generation, people want to blow the whistle, call a timeout, and say, uh, you want to explain to me why God thought he could wreck Joseph's plans? Let me tell you why. Because God's plans are better than our plans. That's all there is to it. Say, so, well, wait a minute now. You're about to tell us it cost Joseph something. Yeah, God's plans cost you. Why? Because God's plans are about the glory of God, and they're also about what is good for us, not in the moment, but for all of eternity. And so, yeah, Joseph's about to have the circumstantial rug yanked out from under his feet. So he's entrusted with dismay. It says in verse number 18, going into 19, before they came together, that's a reference to him and Mary coming together intimately, physically. Before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, it means Joseph was just a good solid, righteous man. And he, he loved her to some extent, so he was unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's just pause here for a moment. It's, it's a verse and a half, and basically the headline over it could be, Joseph experienced public humiliation and his dreams fell apart. Somewhere there was a conversation with Mary and the very strange supernatural story of the angelic visitation. And it's quite obvious from the beginning, I throw no stones at Joseph. There's, I don't know that there's a, a guy in the world that if his pregnant wife-to-be who he knew, knows he hasn't been with comes and says, I'm pregnant and God did it. There's not a guy in the world who's gonna say, yeah, that, that sounds right, that's, that's, that's plausible. <laughs> It's, it's just, it's impossible. So I don't cast any stones at Joseph because what he does is he doesn't believe her. I say, well, Jeff, how do you know that? Because he starts filing for divorce, annulment. He doesn't believe her. So imagine that moment on both of their parts. Her experiencing the rejection of the greatest moment of her life from the man that she had committed her life to and she had done nothing wrong. She's completely misunderstood at this moment. And Joseph thinking, I, I can't believe that she thought I'd be dumb enough to believe a story like that. I'm, I, I, I have no other choice. And so, by the way, it's small town Nazareth, and everybody's going to know. And so Joseph is the guy whose fiance, after she got her dowry, went and slept around. And there are very few things that could crush anybody's heart than to know that level of betrayal. And it happened to Joseph. And so... God entrusted Joseph with a little bit of trouble. I just want to add briefly here before moving on to Gabriel intruding in on Joseph. I, I just want to add this. Is it within your theological framework that a good, glorious, holy, loving, gracious, kind, understanding, compassionate father will still allow a little trouble into your life? We need to allow for that. It's a shallow and syrupy theology that preaches and believes that you come to Jesus and you're, you never have conflict again. 
The Bible actually teaches the exact opposite. Through much tribulation, we enter into the kingdom. And so there he is. He's contacted the family attorney. He's filing the papers, but God's not done yet. Joseph, along with Mary, gets an angelic enlistment for duty. And so what does it look like for Joseph? As he considered these things, he can't get his mind off of it. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do not fear. There it is again. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, Luke adds a, a theological footnote, a reference. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it's, it's incredibly supernatural. The Christmas story, if you just trace it in, in all the Gospels, you're going to find out the Holy Spirit is everywhere. It's, Christmas is a supernatural, uh, uh, supernatural season. People say, I, I can't get in the Christmas spirit. Well, get in the Holy Spirit, and you're in the Christmas spirit. He, that, it, he is the spirit of Christmas. And, and so it's, it's, it's not about tinsel and mistletoe and presents. I'm not against all of that. We've got a tree in our house. I'm not overly religious with stuff like that. What I'm saying is that, that's fine. That's cultural, but that's not, the, that's not the substance of Christmas. Substance of Christmas is God moving intentionally towards a fallen, lost, cursed humanity so that he might save us. And in order for that to happen, God enlisted a carpenter named Joseph. And he said, in a dream, an angel in a dream, that's a bam, bam. I mean, that's, that's pretty intense. It's one thing to get a dream from God. It's another thing to have an angelic visitation. God swirled them together. Joseph gets rocked while he's asleep. And the message is, Joseph, you can't afford to be afraid right now. This is God. When our dreams fall apart, as Joseph's did, we have to have that grounding that understands that fear may be a natural impulse, but it is not a divine invitation. Fear is not a divine invitation. So look, we can look at it. You can feel fear for a moment. There's a difference between feeling fear and living afraid. Many of us will feel, feel fear. That's an instinct that God has put in us to actually protect us. That's a far cry from when we feel fear and then we invite God into the midst. It's supposed to bring that fear into submission. Why? Because faith swallows up fear. And so Joseph is being, not being told, don't flinch. What he's saying here, the angel is, he's saying, don't flee. Don't run from this, Joseph. Feel it in the moment, but this is the Lord. So many of us had our plans. I think about the stuff I had planned for my life when I was, I got saved at 24, and by, you know, 25 and a half, I had it all mapped out. I knew exactly what God was going to do for me. Had it planned and had it written out. I didn't really have it written out, but I, I had a lot of presumption. And unfortunately for me, because the very first few years of my Christian pilgrimage were barely interrupted. I mean, it was, if you could, if you could put a, a chart on it, it was like this. Everything just kept getting better and better and better and better and better. Three years after I was saved, I met my wife. A few years after that, I became the lead pastor of what was then Meadow Baptist Church. 
A few years uh, right before that, I had my firstborn. Right after that, I had my secondborn. The church was booming. Things were going great in so many areas. And then, boom. I entered into a prolonged season where every dream that I once had framed up on my wall, so to speak, where I could say, yes, we're about on chart for that. This is next. This is going to happen. And then in a season of just really comparatively short time, I learned the lesson that all dreams that we have must be submitted to the dream that God has over our life. And I'm going to tell you something. In the moment, sometimes the temptation is to flinch. Go ahead and flinch. Flinch in the presence of the Lord. Flinch honestly before the Lord. Do as David the psalmist did. Pour out your complaint before the Lord. You can flinch, but you can't flee. You can't run. At some point, we have to embrace the reality that a sovereign God did not even spare his own son from difficulty on earth. How much less should we assume to get away? So Joseph is experiencing the implosion of his plans and his limited dream of a nice, quiet life with Mary now gives way to a more significant calling that would establish him forever as an instrumental part of God's eternal plan for redemption. Joseph, for me, is the most sympathetic person in the Christmas story. Because basically, you meet him, he's a nice, faithful guy, loves this girl, he's going to get married, treats her with honor and dignity and respect when the scandal breaks, honors the Lord, raises Jesus as his own son, teaches him the family trade of carpentry, and then has other natural children with Mary, and then he vanishes off the scene, and, and nothing else is ever said about him. Mary is venerated. Mary is honored as well she should be. I mean, obviously, we don't worship her as a mediatrix. We don't bow down to her, but she should be venerated. She is called highly favored of the Lord. Joseph, not so much. But I'm going to tell you, get a face-to-face -face with him when you get to glory and ask him if he thought it was worth it. Ask him if he thought the exchange of his dream for God's dream was worth it. See if he has any complaints. See if he's bitter. See if he's upset. See if he's still looking at you saying, yeah, I'm still waiting on an answer while my dream doesn't come true. I'm going to tell you, when you step into the dream of God at the expense of laying down your own dream, there is so much ridiculous grace that comes upon you that you will be able to praise the Lord that he exchanged your dream for his. And Joseph, somewhere along the line, was able to do that. And so we see in verses 24 and 25, and then we'll move to the last section. The Bible says, when Joseph woke from his sleep, remember, the angelic swirling dream, Joseph obeyed. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not. Very interesting footnote there. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph, in order to protect the testimony of the virgin birth, never was intimate with Mary until after that birth. So somewhere in the mix, Joseph understood the revelation, and he understood that the messianic promise was that the Messiah would be born, not of merely a young woman, maiden. A lot of modern scholarship tries to say, well, she, she wasn't a virgin. She was just, that word can be used for a young woman. Well, I'm just going to go on Mary's testimony. Mary said, I've never been with a man. That's a virgin. I think she'd know. 
So I appreciate all of the modern day scholars that'll say, well, no, 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 I'm sorry. That word virgin means a young woman. Uh, listen, dude, you go back to your study and get all academic. I'm just gonna listen to the woman who knew. And so Jesus Christ came forth with no human father. Divinity wrapped in humanity, implanted in the womb of a little girl in the youth group who was looking forward to her wedding. And nine months later, the cries split the sky. A little baby born in Bethlehem. And there is the Son of God who left the throne of heaven in all of its glory and brought himself down to an embryonic-sized human, uh, human being that lived in the confines of womb from the, from the throne of glory ruling the cosmos to the darkness and warmth of a virgin's womb. And then nine months later, he comes forth and God Almighty longs for the milk of his mother. That's grace. That's the Lord stooping in grace to begin that earthly pilgrimage of the Son of God who became the Son of Man so the sons of men could become the sons of God. So, last section, still in Luke chapter 2. Third and final, fear not. Mary's is fear not when your assignment is overwhelming. Joseph's is fear not when um, your dreams are, are shattered. And now the shepherds, fear not when God begins to dramatically move. And let me make a declaration. I believe for anybody who is hungering and thirsting at the end of this year, you will experience a dramatic move of God in your life if you don't lose your hunger and you don't lose your thirst. I think 2020 is the year of shift. I know it's real common, everybody. It's the year of perfect vision because it's 2020. That's cool. That's fine. I don't have any issues with that. That's... That's fine, but here's what I'm sensing in my spirit. It's, it's going to be a year of dramatic shift. And now listen, don't be like the 25-year-old Jeff Lyle that thinks dramatic shift looks like this. Dramatic shift might look like a Richter scale, but I believe it's coming. For the shepherds, it did. And so let me talk to you very briefly about these guys. Verses 8 and 9 of Luke 2, it says this. In the same region, now we fast forward in nine months, the baby's been born. Jesus has been born. And in the same region where Jesus was born, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And watch this. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And what, what was their response? They were filled with fear. The, literally, it is so intense in the Greek that, I mean, these guys, these are, these are not sissies. These are dudes that are blue-collar, gruff guys out in the field. They're shepherds. They're night shift guys. I used to work night shift. Night shift's got its own breed of people, no matter where it is. Any, any night shift people in here? Fellow vampires? There we go. So I, I did that. I did night shift for years. And it, you, got some, you got some interesting people that work night shift. So these are your night shift shepherds. And they're out there, and their whole job is to kill wolves, to kill tigers, to kill lions, whatever. Whatever's going to threaten the flock. And so all of a sudden, and they're just chilling. They're asleep. A lot of that goes on a night shift too, by the way. And, and the, the sky lights up. And the glory of God, the radiance of God in whatever capacity could be infused or diffused down to this level lights up the night sky. 
and an angel appears, and all of a sudden their dark sleep went to bright light alertness, and the Bible says that they were filled head to toe, inside, outside, body, mind, soul, spirit, filled with awestruck fear. Their, their capacity, their grid had been blown away. And so this is what the angel says. The angel, verse 10, says to them, fear not. There it is again. God sends an angel to announce the most amazing event that had ever occurred on earth at that time. And every monologue opens from Gabriel or the angel with, don't be afraid. God is moving. Dramatic shifts about to take place. Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that'll be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a reference to Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah has been born. And this will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, it, it, it's about to go from 1.0 to 5.0. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those on whom he is pleased. So it went, I mean, they were, they were losing their ever-loving minds when it was one angel in the glory of God, and then the sky opens up, and everywhere you're looking, you feel like you're looking into a portal of heaven, that the glory of God is making it look like it's, it's 12 in the afternoon because the radiance, an otherworldly, completely holy supernatural event is taking place. It's entering into the physical realm. It's not a vision. It's not a trance. It's happening. happening. It, it means heaven has invaded earth. The earth wouldn't celebrate the coming of the Son of God, but the angels would. And the angels sometimes have a great deal more understanding than we do. They don't understand redemption by way of experience, but they know his glory. You often wonder, why do y'all talk about angels at Newbridge Church and IHOP Atlanta? Because the angels understand his glory better than we do, and they can impart some things to us by way of experience that we can't get through an academic study. We need the ministry of angels, hallelujah. And, and listen, if the Lord wants to rip the dome off of this place and invade it with angels, sign me up. I may lose it because the shepherds did, but I want to lose it, and then I want to get lost in it. Amen. And so the whole night sky, and they are getting their praise on the, all of these angels. Who knows how many? I've been, in, I've been in rooms. This is not in the notes, and if you got to go, you ain't going to hurt my feelings a bit. But I've been in the presence of angelic, I've been in an angelic presence before. And I, I guarantee you, I doubt I've ever been in the presence of more than maybe three to four angels. You may not know this, but we have a Baptist brother in this church who, who, who is a part of the church. I don't know if he's here today. And he is anything but fringe charismatic. He's about as level-headed and didactic in teaching. And about two years ago, about a year and a half ago, God started giving him the, the gifting of a seer in this room. He'd be like, Jeff, he'd text me in the service. Jeff, do you see that? I'm like, dude, what are you talking about, man? I'm, I'm singing. What you, what is, Jeff, there's five angels on the pulpit. Do you see it? This is a Baptist dude. It's the only way I knew it was real because if it was one of you charismatic kooks, I'd be like, yeah, you're just stirring up something. But this is my Baptist friend. And every time he'd send me one, the presence of the Lord would get so strong in this room. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, have we learned our way out of supernatural encounter? 
Have we so demanded to understand everything that God says? Yeah, if you can understand it, I'm just going to give you the simple stuff. But if you're ready for the fullness of what I've got to offer, be prepared to be stretched beyond your understanding. And so those shepherds out there had their mind blown. And so the angel says, fear not to them. And then as soon as they descend, they get their glory, the glory of heavens released into the atmosphere. They're praising the son of God who's been born and then they're gone. And so verse 15 through 20, worship team, if you will, come back, come on up. Set the people free. Here we go. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known unto, the, unto us. I love it that they weren't so enamored with the angels that they forgot about the son of God. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered. They marveled. They were astounded. They didn't know what to make of it. They wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, like any good mama, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned. They clocked back in. They went back to work, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Very quickly. Let me just totally eradicate the hallmark vibe of this. Mary just gave birth, okay? Ladies, you know that's not when you want 10 blue-collar, dirty, smelly shepherd strangers coming in all anointed and prophesying over you. And that's exactly what happens. She, she might be nursing. She, she's not in the mood for guests. And these guys come in, and they're they're just spilling out this encounter, angelic encounter, and this prophetic word from heaven, and they're just gushing it out, and any other people that were there are, are marveling at it, and Mary's just holding that baby boy, and she's letting it enter in the mind gate, and it's filtering down into her spirit, and she's connecting it to what Gabriel said, and if she had ever doubted, which there's no indication ever in Scripture, if Joseph had ever doubted, to have these gruff shepherds bust into the birthing room and to declare God just sent a band of angels and lit up the night sky, your baby's the Messiah, it would have been settled in both their hearts forever. I want God to radically move. Careful. Careful. I know I want him to radically move. Let me tell you what I don't know. Matter of fact, I actually do know this. I know that when God radically moves, we cannot handle it if we approach it with logic, reason, or even the best our flesh has to offer. So when we pray, God move, God send a shift, God bring encounter, God radically deliver, People, people are all for deliverance until the person get delivered starts manifesting demons. Uh, uh, can we keep that quiet? Can we, can, can we kind of tidy that down? We want those demons to come out, but they need to be quiet. No, seriously, I've, I've bumped into that spirit. Everybody's like, in the moment, we're like, deliverance, yes! And then it messes up the church service, and there's an elder meeting about it, you know? 
That doesn't happen here, but that's the kind of stuff. Listen, when, when we want God to radically move, and I don't think he's up there bashful. I don't think the Lord is reluctant. I don't think that he's in heaven saying, you know, I'm, I really don't want to reveal my glory in extremely supernatural and radical ways. I, I'm just not into that, really, because all throughout Scripture, you see it everywhere. I think if there's not a radical movement of the Lord, it's not because he doesn't want to. It's because we're not ready to steward it. And I want us ready. But if that's going to happen, while you're praying for God to deliver, heal, save, raise the dead, yes, I mean physically, when we're praying for all of that, here is the foundation under it and the canopy over it. When it begins to happen, don't be afraid. Don't fall back into controlling patterns. See, listen, it'll mess your ministry up. It'll rearrange your dreams. Your assignment will feel overwhelming. And if you give in to fear, you'll start backtracking. You'll say, let's just go back to nice, neat, manageable, tidy, and we'll keep it that way until Jesus comes again. And here's the amazing thing. He's a very gracious, compassionate father, and he'll actually let you do that if that's all you want. It'll be limited blessing. There'll be very little glory. But he'll, because he's committed to you, he'll let you live that way, potentially. That's why most of the churches in the Bible Belt, it's exactly the way they approach the kingdom. Keep it manageable, Lord. Lord, we, we really want to encounter you, but it needs to be between 11 and 12 on Sunday. Right? Now I'm just meddling with you. Y'all were feeling good a minute ago. Now I'm just getting real with you. So, so here's the question. What are you doing with your assignment? If it feels bigger than you, it's probably of God. If you can handle it on your own, check back in with him. It's probably not his plan. Have your dreams been exchanged? Did what you dream come to an end? And I'm just going to ask you the question. Can you find God in the midst of those fragments of your previously held dream? God works with broken things. We're vessels of clay. We're jars of clay. We'll have cracks. And that treasure on the inside can be seen through those cracks. And then when we're praying and asking him, do something in my life. Do something in my family. Do something with my son, my daughter, my spouse, my grandchildren. Do something with my parents. Lord, do something. Then when he begins to do it, honor him by keeping your hands off of it. When he begins to move powerfully, when you surrendered your son or your daughter to the Lord, and he begins to move in them in, in, them in ways that he doesn't move in your life, don't snatch them back. His plans for our children may be very different than what we have envisioned. Have you pointed them to Jesus? Then keep pointing them to Jesus. And when they get as close as they can to him, resist the urge to pull them back and say, no, this feels more safe. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.